Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And my name is Jennifer Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Jason Silverman, and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Dollary Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. When we first created the Bowel Sounds podcast, we decided that the podcast would be for the pediatric GI community and that we would try to create content that we would want to hear ourselves, that would help us become better doctors and healthcare providers and to better care for our patients. The movement to recognize and address structural racism over the past few weeks has made it clear that racism permeates into every aspect of our society, including medicine and the medical community. It's critical for us in healthcare to recognize the impact of racism in medicine and to work to correct this. Today, we are interviewing Drs. Valeria Corin and Conrad Cole, two co-chairs of the NASPGEN's Diversity Special Interest Group. Dr. Valeria Corin is an associate professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Her clinical interest is in intestinal failure and transplant. Dr. Cole is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He is also the medical director of the Division of GI and Intestinal Rehab Program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. On to the show. Dr. Corin, Dr. Cole, thank you so much for joining us on the Bow Sounds podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. We thought that this was such an important topic right now. And, you know, one of the things that is so difficult about having a conversation about racism sometimes is there's, there's this uh, concept of structural racism that I don't think is well understood. What, what is structural racism and how, how does it impact our healthcare system? I think people are more likely to say, oh, that's a racist statement. I think that's more commonly recognized, but the structural racism is the racism that's actually built within our systems, including and not limited to mass incarceration of African-American males, the media portrayals of people of color, segregation, whether it's banking practices that lends certain amounts to certain black areas. And so and it negatively impacts our patients. If our patients are having difficulty getting to our hospital, so the location of our hospital, they don't have public transportation to get there. That's an issue, depending on what your insurance, and your um, educational background. So if you are clearly a physician, you probably have private insurance. But if you may be a um, the central worker at a grocery store who may or may not have the insurance, who may or may not have the ability to not have to go to work or have the don't have the ability to call off work to go to their child's appointment. So I think a lot of these things, um, although we don't think about it really as racism, it is racist and it ends up negatively impacting people. Part of the issue also, when you think about what the social scientists have looked at, the impact of these things on on access um, to what what one would consider essential commodities and how that you know has a downstream effect on you know educational level and you know healthcare. It was interesting um, recently there was an article that it was actually on NBC News and they quoted an article that talked about banking practices um, in the Chicago land area and Lincoln Park is a very affluent area in Chicago. And when they looked at the amount of money that banks had lent just this Lincoln Park area, it exceeded the amount that was given to all the African-American or Black communities in Chicago. 
Now, you you know, those houses may be more expensive. There may be some other differences they didn't control for, but it's still the sheer numbers of loans that were in that area that as compared, they were given into those black areas, which don't allow people to remodel their homes, don't allow them to increase their property value, which, um, you know, these things are also going into how much education is being funded, how taxes. And so these are just examples of things that end up negatively impacting people of color and may impact their ability to obtain health care for themselves or for their children. Uh, recently, I saw on Twitter from like a JAMA article, so you're saying, you know, if they got rid of all cardiovascular disease, that would extend the average lifespan about four years. But that's nothing compared to the extension if you move from a, a predominantly black neighborhood in Chicago mm-hmm. to a predominantly white neighborhood. So like mm-hmm. all this effort we're putting into research and treating patients, that pales in comparison to the impact of if we can address some of these social determinants of health that we've been talking about. I mean, people don't like the term racist or racism. And so I don't think we really in healthcare have really looked at racism as playing such a part in the impact of our children's lives. We talk more about where they live, their zip code, parents do, but all of this is affected by where are these people growing up? Where are they um, obtaining their education from? What type of jobs? Where can they get food? Are they, you know, some people, especially in Chicago, have these food deserts where there's not enough grocery stores or places for people to obtain food. So all of these things end up going into it and can negatively impact our patients. With COVID-19, we've been seeing a lot of recent reports that Black populations may be affected a lot more. Can you use COVID-19 as an example of some of these racial health care disparities? So that basically comes again in terms of social determinants of health, right? So it depends on what you're exposed to that predisposes you to certain diseases. So if you look at the social determinants of health in terms of housing, you know, overcrowding in housing. If you live in a large house, you have the ability to be separate from people who are sick. If you live in a one-bedroom apartment and one person is sick there, there is no way you can avoid those people. These people already have high prevalence of asthma, obesity. Um, So they go in with chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, which are the factors that lead to poor outcome for patients who have COVID-19. To expand on what Conrad was saying, I think one of the other issues, which I think, you know, we saw this nationwide, a limitation of the COVID-19 testing. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people who didn't get tested, but it it was worse in these communities of color. Some of these testing places were drive-throughs. Everybody doesn't have a car. Um, African-Americans may not have a primary care physician. And so you were less likely to be even referred for testing because some of these places required physician referral for testing. A combination of all of these things just increased the morbidity and mortality in the African-American community as a result of COVID-19. And all of these are related to structural racism. What kind of disparities do you see with the use of telemedicine? It actually makes it worse. I've had patients who've had to leave home and look for free internet service because of that. I mean, I've had someone actually go to a McDonald's to be able to do their, their telemedicine. Most of these people also end up using up using their phones, so they don't have a desktop or a laptop at home. You'll get the story, but if you actually want to visually evaluate your patient, it becomes more difficult in order to, to be able to provide appropriate care for, for these families. Yeah. You know, I think everything we've talked about 
you know, makes sense. Their care, their health really depends on all these other factors beyond just what we're taught in medical school and things that we can prescribe. Um, but one thing I think that recently has become especially clear to many of us is that, you know, we as healthcare providers are not immune, even within our own communities, um, in terms of who, you know, we choose to train and who we choose to promote and, and those kinds of things too, that there's a, there's racism even just within our own uh, profession. Can you guys talk a bit more about that? I think more and more people are talking about implicit bias, unconscious biases that we have. You can't think that you have these biases and then you walk into the hospital and you leave them outside. I mean, they come with you. They're, they're part of you. And so I think working on and realizing what are some of our biases that we have, whether it's women, gender, sexual orientation, color, and really trying to work with that because because you're unconscious does not mean you cannot change them. You cannot work with them and try to make it that it doesn't leave, doesn't negatively impact um, those people that you're interviewing for positions in your apartment, whether it's the residents, whether it's the fellows, the medical students, really trying to recognize. And Harvard has listed bias testing that's actually free and it has a large number of categories. Um, so I think, you know, the first step is really kind of recognizing what is your what is your bias and then try to deal with it because you just don't leave it at the door when you walk in. About a year ago at the International Conference on Residency Education, uh, we had uh, the, the real privilege of having Quinn Capers mm-hmm. come and speak. One of the things that really hammered home for me in his presentation is the conversation around the need for patients to be able to see and be seen by physicians that look like they look, that they see themselves represented in, in their healthcare providers. And when when that's not happening, you know, disparities tend to magnify. And so he's done um, some amazing things locally in terms of kind of fostering an interest or passion for a career in medicine at, at progressively earlier and earlier stages. Can either of you guys comment a little bit on some of the drivers that, that might affect that change? I also just want to throw out there that uh, Dr. Capers is uh, from the Ohio State University. Oh, yes. <laughs> Columbus, Ohio. Go Bucks. How do you tell a, a child who uh, or someone who doesn't see um, their representation that they can do it? I think the earlier you start building that confidence in the child, the better it is. And then providing the appropriate you know, facilities that would make them succeed, whether it's books, you know, after school education, uh, things like that. These are the things that would then make them have that niche that they can continue to work on those talents that would otherwise be hidden. But then when, by the, by, when you get to high school, if you've already built the cater, then you can direct them with specific type of mentoring, whether formal or informal mentoring, um, so that they can know how to complete their essays, know where to look for scholarships. When they get to college, get them to the appropriate labs. But in order for them to feel comfortable in those places, again, you know, as Val said, is you have to mitigate, identify and mitigate biases. And even though, though people might say that the biases are perceptions, but it's their reality. You have to address, identify and mitigate those biases to make people feel comfortable. And I'm sure that, you know, and Val might be able to talk more about this. I mean, there have been a couple of articles when it comes to like, why don't we have more minority or people of color who stay in academic medicine? 
you know, why don't people, you know, want to subspecialize when they come through? And part of it is not only the fact that they also have huge loans and debts that they have to pay and support systems that they have to, to maintain, but also they just don't feel welcome within the system. You know, I think also to elaborate what Conrad talking about getting students earlier and earlier, um, and I don't mean to go back out, back to the structural aspect of it, but also, you know, where are these kids going to school? If you live in a poor neighborhood, you may not have the teachers that are teaching science um, that's going to really stimulate you to want to go into medicine. So some of these things also negatively impact. And we try to, quote unquote, plug this leaky pipeline. Um, but if you actually look, the thought is that the number of African-American men that are in medical school is the same as it is in the 1970s. So that would suggest we've got a huge um, a huge pipeline problem where we're, we're not making significant gains. And I think, um, you know, talking about academic medicine, and there was this recent op-ed earlier this year by um, a woman named Dr. Ushe Blackstock, and she talked about her experiences in her academic institution and not having the feeling of being included, feeling of lack of mentorship, lack of support that she got and resulted in her eventually leaving her academic appointment. She actually started a health equity firm um, that actually teaches about implicit bias and training um, so I think that we have to, once they get here, the students also, whether they're residents, fellows, attendings, they have to feel comfortable. Because if they don't feel comfortable, they're not going to stay. And then that, again, you have less people of color in academic medicine, seeing the patients, doing the research. And those patients that you're talking about that want to see a doctor, doctor, physician of color, they're not going to see that. In order to provide the best care for you know all of our patients, we have to be culturally competent and we have to know mm-hmm. where they come from and, and, you know, how to identify with them. And it's mm-hmm. hard to do that when everyone is from one race or one gender. So um, I hope I can share a personal story. So I am from rural West Virginia, a predominantly white population there. And also the textbooks I think that I was learning from had predominantly white examples. So when I went to residency in Memphis, Tennessee, and I did primary care clinic, my continuity clinic in a predominantly African-American population, my very first patient came in skin rash. Mom showed me a picture of poison ivy, and I knew it was poison ivy. I'm from West Virginia. We have poison ivy everywhere. (laughs) But when I saw the skin rash, it was not something that I recognized. And I remember thinking, wow, I came through all of this training and this is making me question my ability to make a diagnosis for this patient. I share that to say, I think that we have work to do when it comes to training doctors as well. Can you comment a little bit on that? I completely agree. I think one of the things, questions that people ask when it comes to providing culturally competent care is, you know, what's what's in it for me? It would take you a shorter time to make that diagnosis if you've already seen pictures in terms of variety, in terms of skin color, whether it's black, brown, um, you know, or a different type of red or hue type of skin. I mean, the other issue, of course, again, has to do with quality and safety, right? I mean, the patient feels safe or safer if they think that you understand or they can open up to you. It's like going to the priest, right? I would say what I can to the priest because I think it's a safe place for me to do. So most patients also would feel safe 
if they know that you understand their plight, you know, why they're, they're a couple of hours late for coming to your clinic and that you just are going to shut the door, uh, knowing that they have to have to change three buses in order to get to where you are. And then there's always a market advantage, right? We're in medicine, the business of medicine. I mean, patients will like you, so they'll come to see you if you provide the right care. So these are the things that we really have to think about when we want to provide a, a culturally competent care. And, and again, the way to do it is you have to train people appropriately. It's not when they are in their first year of residency that they will pick it up. You need to, to train them early and appropriately um, so that they can be able to identify and do it the right way. So rewrite some of those textbooks. Huh? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we, we keep rewriting them anyway, because a lot of things that we were told before that didn't make any sense. I mean, I, I, I'm going to give actually an, an, an interesting example, because I spoke to someone on Friday about uh, a child who they took a couple of years, not in the U.S., but they took, it took them almost 18 months to diagnose him with cystic fibrosis. Uh, this was a child who was born and uh, had significant pulmonary respiratory issues in Ghana, and they just couldn't figure it out because the textbooks say that you can't have CF if you are black. And this this child has no, as far as they could figure it out, you know, um, you know, white ancestry. And it took them, you know, that period of time, you know, for them to be able to do the right testing. I mean, he did have a rare. Um, genetic. I mean, he did have the gene for CF. It wasn't the common mutation, but he was, you know, ended up being diagnosed with CF, but took them 18 months to come to that diagnosis. So there isn't any pure race. And again, your, your skin color doesn't define your genetics. And I think we really have to think about that more appropriately. I'll give a story. So recently, I have a patient that has this very rare disease, um, unfortunately, this patient may end up needing a stem cell transplant. There are no donors for this rare condition, and um, the family's Hispanic. And I usually interact with the mother. I've interacted with the mother since this child was born, and I've only rarely seen the father. And um, the kid gets admitted because clearly he's having having symptoms. It's from very early onset IBD, and the father tells a social worker that he felt like if his child was white, we would have fixed, you know, and I have called all over the country about this kid, I, my team, I've done all this for this kid, but it really didn't matter because I needed to look from the father's standpoint, who, who the father who, you know, there's a language barrier between us. I don't, I'm not fluent in Spanish. And so from what he had seen, if his kid was white, his kid would have been healed. And so, you know, even though I'm African-American, even though I had done everything, which all of us would have done, I had to step back and look at that and see, you know, I still have, you know, maybe some way did I show some bias? Is there something there a father saw? Or is it just, again, I hadn't interacted with him very much and I never got that sense from the mother. But again, it doesn't matter who you are. We all have some sort of biases. And so it really didn't matter that that was not true. It was the father's truth. And so I had to figure out how to communicate him to let him know that, no, I've done everything that I could. I have talked to everybody. I have done multiple testing. And, you know, the answer is this child probably will need a stem cell at this point. People say, I don't see color. Yes, of course you do. 
you just have to deal with it. <laughs> you know, that, that's the way I look at it. So if there's a cultural difference or there's a perception of one, it has to be addressed. You can't sweep it under the rug. And then once you do that, then you see how you can function effectively across those cultures and, um, you know, recognize it, you know, make fun about it. I mean, sometimes that's, that's what, that is what actually would bring a bond between the provider and the patient. You don't always have to be the same race or the same culture. I mean, for me, um, a lot of times the difference that we recognize when we, when I walk into the room, I mean, some of my best parents, we just make fun about it and, and things like that. So that is where the trust uh, comes in, that we know that there are differences. We, we recognize and identify and, you know, appreciate the difference and the culture. And then we work, we work on it and treat each other as persons. And then everyone, I believe, needs to, in a multicultural society, everyone has to have cross-cultural skills, you know, whether it's a religious um, acceptance and knowing, you know, what those religious differences are. You know, someone who has a hijab, I shouldn't shake their hands. It's not because, I wouldn't even offer it unless the lady offers her hands to me first, but you have to recognize it. It's right there in front of you. It doesn't mean that I don't trust it, but I, then I'll walk into another room and I'll see someone, I'll give them a hug. You know, it, it's not that I love that person better, but that is what is accepted in their culture. And if I don't give them a hug, then it's, it's you know, I'm disrespecting them. But the other person who I, I can't shake their hand, it doesn't mean that I don't love them any less. It's just that it is not acceptable if she's not a family member for me to shake her hands. So we need to accept, recognize, and then work on it and, and really, you know, value those differences. How do you recommend that institutions start working on teaching some of these skills to people um, within the healthcare community? I think, as, as we mentioned before, talking about implicit bias training, really, you know, taking that aptitude test, looking to really see what are some of your biases that you may or may not realize that you actually have. And I don't, you know, a lot of us, nobody wants to think that we have biases. Um, you know, we're all, we're all perfect. I would never do that. But this is, you know, these unconscious biases are, I heard somebody describe it like um, these unconscious biases let us know from billions of years ago, you know, run when you see that saber tooth tiger, these are some of the, you know, that's bad. <laughs> So unfortunately, um, over time, some of these things have also been translated to people, whether they are of um, different genders, whether they are different orientations or different races. So really trying to figure out what you can do differently. Um, but I think you have to acknowledge it. I think that's the first thing. If you don't acknowledge that you potentially have it, there's no way you can ever "Quote unquote," begin to to be begin to actually address it. Um, there's a big move for, um, you know, how to be anti-racist, and I think even you know for some people that term anti-racist really turns them off. Um, but I think you know this is a term I think is here to stay, and I think trying to work on how do we um, recognize these biases, how can we become a more inclusive environment for other people who don't necessarily look like us. We gave the example of academic medicine. Um, large academic centers tend to be white males. So they're not a lot of women of color, perhaps. Um, um, and so these are kind of things. So then you have people from different backgrounds, different genders, perhaps who are interacting. 
and, you know, cultural competency, kind of knowing some of the cues and understanding what that person is trying to say. Um, so I think, you know, the institution's really trying to look at their look at their workforce, diversify their workforce, you know, as much as they can when they're evaluating people who are coming. You know, I think one of the things they've talked about, Quinn Capers talks about this holistic review, maybe not even having your step one scores when you're looking at the resident or, or even the fellows. So he actually um, is a senior author on an editorial in the New England Journal that's coming out or came out recently talking about USMLE scores and their impact to going to pass fail and how that potentially could enhance or diversify our, our workforce. So I think looking at our biases, um, trying to diversify our workforce, and look at what we can do in the community, you know, get active in the community. Who are we voting for? I think it's sometimes very easy to just check, quote unquote, check the box for whatever party you belong to. But really, what are these people saying? What are some of their actions that have happened previously? and incorporate that and see how we can actually, because again, a lot of this does come back to the structural racism aspect of this, um, that yes, we can do a lot within the hospital, but these patients leave the hospital, the workers, everybody leaves and goes home. And so we also have to try and figure out a way to help or to change a lot of these practices. So I think that we definitely have the world in which we live when we walk into the hospital, but we also need to address what's going on outside of the hospital. Yeah, and to build on what uh, Dr. Curran just said, I mean, I know she kept talking, uh, keeps talking about her favorite author, so I can I can talk about my author. As well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so um, one of the the at least for me the the one the the one person or the one person who everything he writes I try to read is Malcolm Gladwell, and one of you know everyone knows about Tipping Point, which made him famous. But he also wrote another one, you know, which when you talk about implicit bias or biases is Blink. And if you guys um, have time, take a look at that book. And and with, you know, within that is the idea whether for good or bad, you make that quick decision and go with it. And it's something that you inherently learn. But in order to get out of it, and there's also talking about, you know, as you talk about microaggression, there's like a PNG has a commercial. Um, a black guy who walks around and goes through the day of little microaggression, uh, you know, where they, you know, they were, you know, people looking at him, not allowing him into the elevator, watching him as he has breakfast, refusing to sit next to him, you know, not coming close to him as he teaches his son to swim. And then at the end of the commercial, the door opens, it's actually a judge and, and he was he was sitting there, you know, um, having to do his work. So you have to go through these microaggressions all day and you work into your office and it's not supposed to impact what you do. But coming back to bias, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the implicit bias test, which is more of, you know, specific provider bias or individual bias. But also, you know, one has to look at mindfulness and building associations where they're having friends or working in the communities. I mean, that's definitely one way to do it because it also helps people to build perceptions and to build empathy. I keep going back to this in terms of cultural competence training. I mean, people have to be culturally competent. They have to be trained. It's not something that you learn if your community is not diverse. You will, your family is only one specific uh, uh, genetic variable. There is no way you'll be cultural, culturally competent in, in a very diverse community. Obviously, the last few weeks have been um, 
uh, a big upheaval. There have been a lot of emotions attached to the events that have gone on. And to, to build on some of the comments that uh, Dr. Cole and Dr. Coran, you've made about managing these issues, a lot of it comes down to um, having conversations, having real conversations between people and um, understanding one another. And, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who, um, who are white, like me, who want to engage in these conversations and, and are hesitant right now um, because it feels so raw. It feels um, kind of uncomfortable. They don't know how to wade in. How would you advise somebody who, who wants to be an ally, who wants to engage, who wants to be thoughtful, but is sort of sitting on the sidelines, um, feeling like it's not their place or, or it's not the right time to, to have these conversations? Let's say, I mean, I think the time is now to have these, <laughs> to have these conversations. And, you know, we're probably where we are because we have not had these conversations previously and we've not been really willing to talk about race. Looking now, people have, I mean, I think this is totally different from, from the previous times, because this is not the first time an, a person of color has been recipient uh, and has died because of police um, mistreatment or maltreatment. But I must admit, this seems to be more of an awakening now that we've, we have now than what we did before. And it seems like if you look at the crowds, the crowds are very diverse that are protesting. It's not just people of color who are protesting. It's people from all walks of life. I think when people try to figure out what can you do, I think, you know, try to educate yourselves. What, what are your biases? You know, I think one of the books people have supposedly is being really well read is How to Be an Anti-Racist um, by Dr. Kendi, talking about the ways um, that we can address this. If you have the means, donate. There are multiple organizations that are doing some of this fighting that um, you may or may not be able to do, you know, perhaps looking on the NAACP website, looking for different organizations that are actually trying to make a difference. I think also petitions. There are a number of petitions that are being circulated right now, whether regarding George Floyd, regarding Breonna Taylor, who was unfortunately killed by the police in Kentucky. So I think, you know, try to be active and also, you know, really know who you're voting for. Looking at those. So the police chiefs are appointed by the mayors. So what's the history of the mayor? What's the history of the alderman? You know, really being thoughtful when you're voting and not just simply think about, you know, they're all Democrat or they're all Republican or they're all independent. That's who I want to vote for. I just I think we now need to just continue to have this conversation. It's, it's hard. Um, I think that people, um, you know, makes you uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for white people, Asian people, it's uncomfortable black people, Hispanic people to sometimes have these these conversations that are not comfortable, but I think if we don't have these conversations, we're going to go back to what we what we were doing before. Conrad, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I I completely agree with you. The, the, the time is now to have the conversation, and you 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 have to bring it up. Um, it's not about just saying how was your weekend. It's about specifically saying, you know, how was your weekend? I saw what happened. You know, bring it up. Bring it up and say. You know, I saw they killed a 25-year-old boy who was running. I know your son runs. I mean, like my son is an active, avid runner, and I run too. So when, when you know, someone when God goes out jogging and is shot, you know, that, and everyone here in my uh, division knows that we are runners, 
So that's a conversation you, you have. It's, it's, it's not just how was your weekend, right? Bring it up and say, you know, oh my gosh, I'm sure this hit close to home. And, and what can we do is, is being actively involved, you know, um, volunteer, uh, mentor people. They don't have to look like you. Um, one of the things that some of us talk about and it's actually published is, you know, something called the black tax, which in academia, you know, everyone who is black then has to do work uh, to to increase diversity. But I mean, you know, there's so much you can do when, you know, yeah, other people can do the same as well. And and ask questions when you are put in front, you, you're part of of selection committees and everyone on the table around the table looks like you ask the question why isn't one someone else who doesn't look like us is sitting at the table i'm sure they're qualified and usually they're qualified but no one has thought about them because they're not friends with them so so that is part of the conversation that should be heard and when they are you know then you know we would have fewer and fewer of these episodes and incidences occurring you know we've talked a little bit about generalities and how we can get involved, but is there anything specific to pediatric gastroenterology? So I think from a GI perspective, one of the things that I know Val and I are working on and have worked with the, the executive of NASPIGAN is to actually get numbers and to know, you know, what's exactly in terms of a racial, ethnic, and gender diversity. We'd like to know how diverse uh, association is, I mean, what's the diversity among our fellows? And, you know, with that, then we can have tried to build strategic uh, programs in place. Again, we've, we've talked about going to the high school, not waiting for teaching and tomorrow, because by teaching and tomorrow, people already know what they want to do. And I think that's a little bit too late to get people engaged and involved, that we need to get down to the high school level, at least for starters, and if possible, go to the middle school. I mean, those are the things that we would like to do. And again, encouraging members, um, gastroenterologists, physicians, um, to look around them and see how can they engage other physicians in terms of mentoring programs, you know, uh, bringing in people into their labs, getting people to work around with them, to shadow them in clinic, engage with the Boys and Girls Club and, and other associations around, you know, look at the high schools, most of our hospitals are in areas where we can, you know, make an impact, you know, talk to the high school teachers, identify students who can come and hang around and see what it looks like and what fun we have every day in the work that we do. We really want to thank you for uh, this time to have this discussion. And I was wondering if you had any final words for our listeners. Register and vote. <laughs> that's, uh, for me, that's actually one of the key things is that, you know, um, you know we, we, we feel comfortable where we are but we need to be active members or participants of our community. I think, you know, we, we really need to be in our communities, speak out and let people know if someone annoys you or tells you something, it's not always about being passive about it and maybe trying to look for a way to, to, to sort of like report them to HR or things like that. I think you need to let them know if they've said something. It's not what you say back to the person, it's how you say it. And it could be a teachable moment. Try to address it right there and then. I mean, whether it's to you or to a family um, or to a patient, I mean, if you try to address it to people, people might not know what they're doing, 
but pull them aside and tell them, you know, and say, you know, this is what you said. It doesn't sound right or it didn't come out right. And they, they might be, if, they, if they're insistent, that's a different story. But a lot of people just don't know what they've done is not appropriate. You know, try to educate uh, the people around you, um, you know, in terms of cross-cultural competency. I think that's, that's key. I think, you know, again, I can't state how much um, about looking internally and looking at your own unconscious biases and trying to see uh, what they are and what the best way for you to deal with them and to try to help. Because if you don't really know what they are, you can't change those um, and they'll continue to be an issue for you as we try to diversify our workforce, as we try to diversify where we live. So I think really looking inwardly and, and having these difficult conversations with your family members, with your, with your parents um, about this, because I think that until you really recognize that you have some of these biases, you're not going to address them and they're going to continue to play out. You look on the news, you see all of these biases that are being played out when they're recorded. You saw the woman in New York who called the police on the bird watcher. Um, you know, we see a lot of these these episodes. And so her, whatever her bias was, it made her feel that she could do this to this man. And so I think, you know, again, kind of look and and then it was interesting. She then later said, I'm not racist. And so, and maybe in her head, she may not have been racist, but her actions um, were racist. And so I think, you know, trying to really look at yourself internally and try to come up with what you need to do differently is what we need to start with. That's the first step. Until we take the first step with really looking at this, I don't know that anything else is going to make Thank you both so much for joining us uh, to talk about this super important topic. And obviously this is just the beginning, right? Like we're starting this process. We're finally able to speak about this problem that's been there for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, so hopefully we'll have another conversation soon and talk about the progress that we've made. Uh, but thanks thank again. You so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you guys. Thank you very much. So we had a fantastic time talking to Drs. Cole and Corin, and we really want to thank them so much for taking the time to sit down with us uh, and sharing their sharing their passion for this topic and really speaking from the heart. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. It just seems like in the past, maybe we could have thought oh, if we give it more time, we'll continue to make progress. But now it seems like we're no longer, things are moving backwards. To me, I think that's why, like, this this time has been different. And uh, and we all have the responsibility, you know, to examine ourselves and our professions and our communities and think about, you know, how can we make this better? Because um, it's not going to happen by itself. And we can't, like, obviously we can't rely on our politicians to do anything about it. Um, you know, we have to do it ourselves. So, you know, another another topic that came up a lot is really starting early. And I know we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but the AAP has recently come out with um, how to talk to your kids about skin color and race. And I've already started talking to my toddlers about skin color. And and um, and I think that it is important for all of us to get involved. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, 
On our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. You can also get there through our website at www.naspagan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the some of the amazing things the Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, bye for now.